2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45
0: up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast... You can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show hello and welcome to the napoleonicist we've basically started already tonight um we've only been chatting for five minutes and we managed to insult each other and laugh quite hysterically um and a few uh, Impolite hand gestures have been um, made uh, in the course of our discussions. Ed is already in stitches. As you know, we've been building towards what is effectively a climax of Wellington month. For the last four weeks you've heard lots of different pieces about Wellington's life, his career, his successes and his failures, but at no point have we brought all of that together into one cohesive episode. Folks may remember that back in November, I ran a Napoleon Month where I was joined by Marcus Cribb and Luke Daly Graves for what I called Napoleon the Great Debate, a deliberate nod to that kind of tendency amongst some to style Napoleon as Napoleon the Great. So you can guess where this is going. Today we are going to have... Wellington the Great debate, in a willfully tongue-in-cheek nod to that episode, because at no point would I suggest that Wellington should be classed as the Great, although I strongly suspect that one of my guests may disagree with me. Joining me for this discussion are Marcus Cribb. Yes, because he has no reputation whatsoever for absolutely adoring Wellington, he only worked at Apsley House as the manager for lord knows how many years, um, so no prizes for guessing what he's going to argue for um, over the course of this, and Professor Ed Cross, Emeritus Professor at the United States Command and General Staff College and the author of All for the King's Shilling, the British Soldier under Wellington. So where to begin with this? Well, firstly, a few kind of little housekeeping rules. None of our guests are going to go on extended lectures, are they, Marcus, about how Wellington wasn't a defensive general? Um, The reason being that I've already told him that if he does, I'll just mute him and there's nothing he can do about it. Um, The other thing, of course, is to be nice. Um, I do happen to know that Ed has been prepping extensively for this for about a month. And I'm therefore confidently expecting him to absolutely annihilate Marcus. And although Marcus won't enjoy me admitting this, Marcus thinks he will as well. Um, So as in any debate, shall we start with some opening statements, folks? Um, I'm going to give you two minutes each to make your pitch on Wellington's status in history. And Marcus, I will be kind for once and let you go first.
1: The
4: Duke of Wellington, as we all know, would probably not call himself great, but I think it's only kind that when another half of this historical coin often call part one of his many rivals the great, that it's fair that we call him great himself. Wellington's not great because he conquered. Wellington's great because he won. He was magnanimous in victory. And there's far more to him than just his military career. Yes, we will hark on about his many victories, but he was a man of many things. He was a man of peace. He was a man who wanted to change the shape of Europe with diplomacy. He was an avid lover of arts and music, opera, and especially and a man after my own heart. That food he could leave give or take, but he always kept a good clarice on his table. He was a lover of the fine things in life, and as part of that he preserved art in, uh, across Europe when he came across it. The link to Rapsey House being that he preserved the loot that Joseph Bonaparte was taking after Vittoria and tried to return it to the King of Spain himself. Wellington is not as well known as some of his rivals, mentioning no names but he is really worthy of remembrance. And we do have him out there in the world, such as the capital of New Zealand, 321 name places named after Waterloo in Britain, and the most non-fiction name of a pub in England. Wellington's important to our national psyche, but also internationally that after Waterloo, he helped reshape Europe, not only from his victory, but with his diplomacy, his relations, and that brought peace to Europe for over 40 years. Wellington's rightly or wrongly remembered for Waterloo, but as we will delve into here, I honestly believe he is an all well-rounded general, and never suffering a major defeat in a pitched battle. He's actually one of the most successful generals, and you'll see wild statistics out there about Caesar and Attila the Hun next to Napoleon. But Wellington statistically lost none pitched battles, terrible at sieges, but he's worthy of being great for many reasons and worthy of the name great as well, I will argue today. And also, Thanks for having me, Zach. It's good to be here. And in returning, I can't believe it's been since November for doing the Napoleon one.
2: Yeah, although you did uh, feature on a, on a few since then, you are becoming a, a, you're in danger actually of becoming a regular correspondent on this. We must rectify that immediately. Ed, straight over to you, your opening pitch.
1: Thank you, Zach. And it's a real pleasure to be here with you both. Uh, I'm going to co- quote Carl Jung to begin with because he said, thinking is difficult, that's why most people judge. And our purpose today, at least I hope so, is to try and understand Wellington to a greater depth, not pass simple assessments or engage in superficial comparisons. To me, labeling someone as great just doesn't seem to merit, doesn't give me any insight. Uh, I think there's much to consider when analyzing Wellington. Rory Muir once said, and I, cede much to Roy Mirror when it comes to Wellington, that there's more to Wellington than the British Army and more to the British Army than Wellington. So I hope we're able to delve into that to some degree. Uh, to me, he seems a man of contradictions. He was the hero of the nation, but so fundamentally elitist in his perceptions and some of his policies. Uh, even his leadership, he wins because he developed leaders, because he developed subordinates. Uh, I think you'd find out he he does not. Uh, Again, Roy Muir wrote, until the closing of his life, Wellington remained a controversial, divisive, and vital figure in Britain. I wouldn't disagree with any of those, but if you are controversial and divisive, not sure labeling someone with great is going to benefit any of us. Um, My question, and I will be bold enough to intercede, these questions because as I was doing the prep they they tended to uh, um, they emerged as I was uh, doing the analysis and here's my question was Wellington not the last of the great aristocratic military leaders was he more akin to Frederick the Great than Napoleon and that's my opening
2: and that is quite an opening thank you both uh see so I was going to go straight to rebuttals. I'm tempted to, to kind of consider Ed's question off the bat. Folks, this is appalling podcasting. I do apologise. This just shows how some of these sometimes you just roll with things. Um, was Wellington more akin to Frederick the Great? See, there's an interesting quote straight off the bat there, isn't there, with General Foix, who in the wake of Salamanca said that um, Salamanca, because Foix was at Salamanca, was amongst Maman's army, which was quite severely beaten over the course of the battle, and said that it was a battle in the style of Frederick the Great. So superficial comparison maybe, but it just goes to show that others were thinking along similar lines. There's also the point that I've made on a number of occasions, that I would say that Wellington on his best day, which in my view was Salamanca, does not equate to what I regard as being Napoleon's best day, vis-a-vis Austerlitz. There is no equivalent there, Um, but I fear that I may be hogging too much of the the limelight already. I do apologise folks, because you're not here to listen to me, you're here to listen to my guests. So Marcus, throw you in at the deep end, Wellington, more Frederick the Great than Napoleon? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, from the outset,
4: you have Frederick the Great, and Napoleon, who has books after him, called Napoleon the Great. Yet very few people call Wellington great, except for Alfred Lord Tennyson, who called Wellington the last great Englishman, famously born in Ireland. So it's not a title he'd want to probably refer to himself. You know, we often get these comparisons, Wellington versus Napoleon, yet they are in two quite separate spheres. Wellington goes to real statesmen later, Yes, he's an MP for Ireland in the Irish Parliament early on in life, but that's almost like a subsidy salary for a young officer. And it's a chance on social scales. Politics really turns to after military, whereas Napoleon kind of mounts politics to further his military career. Wellington's got no aims to try to conquer the world for his own uh, gain. He's doing it on orders. And also we see that he's actually quite tired and sick of war. He doesn't long for it like Napoleon did. So comparing him to Napoleon is always so different, because yes, they were born in the same year. Yes, they faced each other uh, a mile apart at Mont Saint-Jean, but they're not actually really on the same levels because Wellington didn't want to be on the same levels. He loved France and despised Bonapartism. And for that, I have much sympathy, I have to admit. So was he more great than Frederick the Great, well, Frederick the great, again, a statesman? I don't think so. I think it's very difficult to compare these um, figures without uh, them being here. I would say that Wellington's great in his own right, but comes with the caveat, he's not without flaws. And we will dive into that. But Wellington is not without flaws. He is human and does not deserve godlike, cult like status. Um, I don't think many people do from history, and I've, none of the people we've listed so far deserve cult like status or godlike worship. But Wellington does deserve some respect and adoration, and that's
2: what I hope to, to bring to it, really. That collective clang you can hear <clears throat> is our listeners' gobs hitting the floor at the sound of Marcus acknowledging. That Wellington was not perfect. <laughs> Ed, let me bring you in. Um, I, I, I appreciate that you may want to respond to some of Marcus's points, but also I'm keen for your rebuttals to Marcus's opening statement, and then we'll have rebuttals from Marcus in turn.
1: Well, these questions, and I will pose them throughout again, are what just arose, and I'm hoping there's something that the Reader considers and maybe when the podcast is over we'll go back and ruminate on I'm not looking for specific answers but in this case I was looking more for methodology than moniker because Frederick was a known micromanager he didn't trust his subordinates he could be rather harsh in his judgments and Napoleon while I if you know anything about my other writing, you know, I'm hardly in his court, uh, but his leadership development, his trust in subordinates is what gave him some battlefield flexibility that was denied. We'll get into this more later, but again, I was more interested in, in comparing the methodology of Wellington to Frederick than than the, uh, than the operational methodology of Napoleon. That was my intent.
4: I mean, I remember luckily name dropping here, the great Zach White himself. Um, when we were sat at uh, National Army Museum Chelsea uh, two months ago, almost now, uh, comparing the headquarters of Napoleon and Wellington and saying that if you took a a staff officer or even a junior officer from most um, NATO or European or at least British army and dropped them into Napoleon's headquarters, we would recognize the working status that lots of people had their own sub-departments and people could slot into that system. If you slotted one of those officers into Wellington's headquarters, they would have a really rough time of it because of his micromanaging nature, because he didn't really have a, what I would term a tactical forward headquarters, a tactical HQ that would move forwards with the battlefield and deploy. It was him with a writing desk on his saddle and then a family of runners, as they, as they call themselves, you know, young um, adjutants. And he paid for additional ones uh, for my, Calculations, the it's around 24 he had at, by the time of Waterloo, um, give or take different staffs that he pulled them from, and he was sending them everywhere. He was a huge micromanager. Um, Frederick the Great, I, I don't know enough to compare in depth but certainly close, Wellington's closer to Frederick than Napoleon, yes. Uh, they had really different command styles, and I'm, I'm very conscious we've got a question about command styles and micromanagement uh, coming up in the script. Um, but yes, they are had really different styles for that, but both were actually very successful. Uh, neither were negative command styles, and neither were actually too ineffective Uh, though wellington's allowed less wiggle room and i certainly think there was an element of him believing that he could do everyone's jobs better but we definitely need to come back to that
1: and i will only add this just to interesting but when my students at command general staff college would be pretty much done with the course and again it was just uh a Well, we started before Frederick, we finished in World War II, but when we had gone through the commanders and their methodologies and their areas, this is just, just came up and I just found it remarkable that they said the two folks they didn't want to be subordinates under were Frederick and Wellington, because you said it's not a negative command style and it depends how you define negative, most commanders want Some commanders want some level of authority, some level of autonomy, and to be denied that means you're going to be denying professional development, and I'm just telling you what they shared. They didn't want to be under Frederick because they didn't want to be told, and they knew that if they were under Wellington, they'd also be told, and independent action would not be encouraged, so I'm just sharing that for whatever it's worth. Quick
2: one from Mia, to what extent is that a reflection of the modern way of waging war? Because today we place much more emphasis on things like initiative, independence of thought and action, on the individual as at, at, at potentially as low well as um, NCO level, kind of being preemptive in dealing with situations as they arise. Now that's a concept that's quite embryonic when you look at the British Army during this period. Yes, OK, the rifles are often said to have been able, been trained to sort of think that a little bit more independently, but by no means do they equate to the modern day rifleman as we would know it. Now contrast that with Napoleon, which we've alluded to already, much more inclined to allow particularly his marshals, a degree of independence, a sort of the enemies over there, go find them, tell me when you find them and I'll bring the other boys as soon as I can. And so you see, we will discuss this kind of a very different style of battle often playing out when the is in the field to when Wellington is in the field. So I wonder whether your, your students, being captains, majors, colonels, who have an established training in the army already and have a career and have seen service, they are trained in the modern way of waging war. And this idea that somebody sitting, you know, 50 miles behind the front line in, in HQ breathing down the neck and telling them no you're going to take this hill that, that's just deeply
1: unhelpful do you think that's a factor in, in play there oh absolutely and by the way with the current tech they now have people with eyes and ears on something that's 75 miles away and you'll suddenly get a buzz in your ear and go why are your chaplains over here and you'll go i'm in a firefight I don't have time to answer your questions from the desk, so it's starting to become a real issue, which is maybe the sore spot why they brought it up. Uh, but I think it's telling, and it, and it goes back to my question: Was he the last of the greater aristocratic military leaders? Because where do we do we see that as a lineage to modern warfare—the Wellington method, the Frederick method? I don't. I see that dying out. I see the the growth of initiative, and it's not a Wellington versus Napoleon question because this was more of a was he more of the last great aristocratic leaders with this methodology. So I would absolutely say that's true, but it was I it was something I did not anticipate them bringing up and being as adamant about it as they were.
2: And this, I know Marcus wants to come in, but just very very quickly, this is a really interesting point that. In in the longer term, you can argue very convincingly that actually Napoleon wins the battle for history, whereas Wellington is the one who wins the battle for the present. Marcus,
4: yeah, that's an interesting one. Is it? We, you know, more people know Napoleon's name and more station than Wellington. Sadly, um, on on the you know kind of modern military thinking from my, my experience, but twelve years in the, the army reserves. Uh, I, I would say that we probably have uh, far more broad military experience at a low level for Ed students, at you know, even lieutenant level, than some of these generals because of their like, independent style. You know, even at captain's level within a, a, a Georgian army uh, I'm speaking for, you know, they are very much within the regimental system and very little independent command. Even majors would actually be, only a few of them be given any sort of independent command. So really when they reach regimental commander, they, they have very little beyond um, certain patrols and picket duties. They are very much within the embryonic system. Uh, and that's a, a huge difference. And the other one, that I kind of slightly want to pick Ed up on, and maybe our, our first disagreement so far, is Wellington being the last arist- you know, aristocratic great military leader. Personally, I think for Wellington, though, he has all the traits of a great aristocrat, For lots of his career, actually, we can drop the aristocrat as a defining feature. He comes from a very poor aristocratic background. Uh, he's certainly hampered by some of his Anglo-Irish uh, upbringing. And he is a massive snob, uh, but he doesn't come from the money. His uh, family have to purchase his commission for him. And actually that's only really because he's so awkward as his mother sadly calls him and there's not really a career path for him he, he's not going to have an estate to bring up his father passes away when he's very young and they're left with a huge amount of debts they sell off the family home and move to london with no land so he's not if though he's a snob he's not an aristocrat from the, from the top of the cloth as such
1: hmm but he sure. ends that such, he doesn't maybe begin as such. And my question was, was he the last? And I guess by the end of his career, even Muir says he was conscious and desirous of the importance of rank in an aristocratic age in society. I think he, I think he, he aspired to it and he was eventually given all the rank and the levels of aristocracy and he certainly bore that mantle well, but he, he still bore it. He was the Duke of Wellington, not just a a standard individual. So I still think by the end of his career, he's an aristocrat.
2: I would agree with you there, Ed, wholeheartedly Um, and very eloquently put, because that's far, far better put than anything that I was going to Formulate when I was planning to come back to Marcus on that. We, we should move forward with some of these questions that I, I posed to you. Uh, yes, folks, there is planning that goes into these episodes, if, you, if you'll believe it. Um, and I wanted, funnily enough, to begin by probing Wellington's military career, which actually we've done in spades for the last 20 minutes, as it is. Um, let's talk overall reputations. We've touched on this fleetingly. But I think it is important to to have this more general discussion about to what extent Wellington was the greatest captain of his day. Wellington, I know, would have argued that actually Napoleon was the greatest captain of his day. Marcus, I I know you've kind of wrestled with this on a number of occasions, um, having discussions with folks from the Napoleon camp who um, feel that to acknowledge Wellington's success is to somehow trash the memory of Napoleon so let me hear your thoughts on this Wellington greatest captain of his day I mean
4: yes and I'm not allowed to say anymore you've banned me from talking about Wellington as an offensive general Um,
2: (laughs) I'll allow you 90 uh, seconds and then I will mute you I'm
4: really hamstrung here uh, your honour am I allowed to uh, open my case um yes jokes aside Wellington can easily be seen as one of the greatest captains of his day (laughs) His defeats are, thankfully, for us, and I I truly, honestly, believe the the wider context behind it, thankfully, um, few and far between. Uh, We've got Redina and Burgos as his two great kind of defeats, uh, neither of which are pitch battles. And many of the battles that Wellington comes into, uh, we see in really, really different circumstances. Waterloo gives Wellington his reputation as a defensive general who holds a ridge. Everyone ignores the strategy behind that, where he's trying to hold a long frontier. He then pushes forwards from Brussels towards that frontier, wins at Catechabra, just strategically at least, and then um, chooses the ground, giving the information to the Prussians, not Blücher, because Blücher is incapacitated briefly, and chooses the battlefield and the strategy to win the battle. That gives him the reputation of always holding a ridge, which is backed up with battles like Picasso, where he had chosen a fantastic, fantastic battlefield where, honestly, I, was surprised, I you read it and you're surprised to even know that he was attacked at the ridge. But there are many other battles where Wellington doesn't hold a ridge. You know, Zach's not going to be surprised when his jaw's going to hit the floor when I'm going to mention Porto but doing an amphibious river crossing under the eyes of Marshall suit is ambitious, it's bold, it's risky, and it's offensive. We see uh, Relisa, his first battle, uh in the peninsula war him attacking up two subsequent enemy held positions we see a say him crossing underneath the eyes of the indian guns crossing a ford under a maelstrom of fire and advancing upon the enemy down the mouths of their guns this is not the traits of a shy or defensive general and then we see well thought out battles like victoria where he organizes his army into columns marches forwards and pressures On the enemy from multiple different angles and then we cannot talk about Wellington being a great general without mentioning Salamanca. Salamanca where armies are marching in parallel and either could easily hold the advantage. The armies are incredibly well matched and well numbered. There is a momentary opportunity that presents itself and Wellington I believe, probably famously threw his chicken leg over his shoulder. But either way, he saw that. He had a fantastic eye for opportunity as well as topography. And it's that eye for detail is one of the reasons why he's a micromanager. But he goes forwards and does it himself. He rides the orders across the plains at Salamanca, takes the opportunity and takes the fight to the enemy. That is an aggressive move. That is a fantastic move. And it brings him victory after victory. Sadly, many of those victories are not followed through because of different things that happen after the battles, and we never get that kind of single battle that gives us the overall victory, except for really at Waterloo, which is why I believe it's probably so well known, as as well as facing uh, Napoleon. But all of those together make Wellington great. Uh, his his broad experience of different battlefields and different styles of battles. And he admitted himself how bad he was at sieges, but he took that information and used it against the enemy by using the strategy of building the lines of Torres vedres By using strong fortifications, he undermined the, the French chance to ever take Lisbon. And he had that in his back pocket throughout the campaign as a strategy that he drew up. So even off the battlefield, his tactics are fantastic and I'm hoping later on, but it's one of his things really that we want to delve into is Wellington's one discipline of the the army comes through. But two, and probably more important than even that, I'm afraid, Zach, his logistics, his organisation for feeding the army um, and marching it in the right place uh, can fall short at times. But it was there as a tactic that he often tried to reform things like the Wagon Corps, which the French simply didn't have. And their tactics of living off the land, move the enemy against them. And at the same time, Wellington's having to fight a diplomatic war. He's having to keep the local and the national governments on side and the non-governmental forces such as the guerrillas and the juntas and... Oh. and the Bishop of Porto and all sorts of agencies. He's having to fight uh, with them on the on the tabletop to really win a war. That takes a lot of work for a man who is, is not showing up the responsibilities that he should do. He's micromanaging everything himself. That is an incredible workload and the energy he has to keep that up. Um, so was he a great captain? Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, because he's doing so much himself. I have failed in my duty as moderator for this debate because I allowed you to speak for more than 90 seconds on why Wellington wasn't a defensive general. Um, Sincere apologies, folks. Um, Complaints to me. Um, Ed, I'm gonna let you come straight. There are things that I want to say in response to Marcus, but I'm gonna let you come straight back
1: in. Very kind. I'm gonna reiterate my point though that I don't find putting labels on individuals of much use as a historian. And the question was, was he the greatest? I'm not sure that really matters. Because uh, you end up with these comparisons because that, that implies a hierarchy and then eras are different, times are different. Uh, so labeling him the greatest doesn't give me any insight. Saying he's great, I'm, we have to, we never defined what great meant exactly. We, we know generically what it means. I'd like to be more specific and I'm going to surprise Marcus here a little bit because I'm going to say he was a stellar operational commander. I'm not going to come in and say he wasn't. I think there's no doubt about it. And with some limitations, mostly the micromanaging, which has a huge and profound impact, he was sound on the battlefield arguing against that it is it is, it is ludicrous. and he. And these things about being operationally and tactically sound are no mean feats, especially since he's carrying the load totally on his own. So to argue that he wasn't a supremely competent uh, leader would, I think, be counterproductive. And uh, I I'm not. I think it would it'd be deceptive to, in, in a debate, try to argue against that. But, and I'm sure you were waiting for the but, uh, I needed a metric on which to assess Wellington on a deeper level for me. And what I came up with, and this always makes Zach laugh, but i referred to the Army's uh, publication 622, Army Leadership in the Profession, because it's a document that looks back at leadership since 1775. And it tries to assess, I know it's for current use and it would be anachronistic to totally apply it over the topic and then judge but what I'm applying it for is to give me insight whether I have avenues to approach and I want you to know of the eight core competencies there's eight Wellington would score high on character presence intellect although there's a subcategory of intellect it's called interpersonal tact And I don't think he does all that well on that category. Uh, Leads, uh, leadership and practice, which Marcus eloquently uh, talked about, all the the variables he has to juggle in Spain are remarkable. Uh, And then, of course, achieves. Those are just remarkable that he could be that confident. But he also, had, there's two more. That's six of the eight. Uh, one, I think, <clears throat> and this strikes I me, mean, it's, it's a subcategory compared to the other ones, but it's still a category. And that would be counterproductive leadership in regards to, it's defined as abusive behaviors, including behaviors that involve a leader exceeding the boundaries of authority by being verbally abusive, cruel, or degrading others, and some of Wellington's propensity to blame subordinate commanders and the men for issues like not being able to feed them properly for weeks on end, et cetera, and then the men acting out because men will not willingly starve, and they go into the potato fields and steal potatoes. are He's, he's got to manage these, the sensibilities of the, the Spanish. I got it with this an immediate need, these men are starving. I mean, my nutritional analysis shows that this isn't just me making this stuff up. These guys are literally into the various stages of starvation at times. Not to acknowledge that, to blame the men and their officers for what are obviously operational variables that I understand he's struggling with. I don't think that that's a good leadership trait. And my main problem with him is that it develops leaders, develops and shows traits of uh, taking subordinates and making an effort to, and we'll get to that later, the the ramifications of teaching them the craft and not after the fact when things get screwed up or after the fact when they lead a charge and can't stop and carry it forward too far Then he castigates everyone. When was the time that you ever gave them authority or allowed them to understand the essence of the battlefield enough so they would know their job? So I would say, especially in developing leadership, he falls short, especially within the modern context. Uh, But I have this question, this one arose. Another one, sorry, you're gonna get stuck with another question. Uh, The records of his deeds. And I agree with Marcus again on so many of the points. But they're heavily Anglo centric, right? It's a pro Wellington historiography. Like now, Maitland, now is your time nonsense that gets perpetuated from, and it goes from collective memory into quote, historical fact. And that gets perpetuated over time. Redina. His first, it's, it's not a significant loss, but it could have been if Messina had done what he was supposed to do after Ney's fine work being totally outnumbered. But here's what was interesting. Until just fairly recently, I hadn't even heard of redina So I went back and I scoured Chandler, Muir, Long, Ford and Elting. And those of you would probably have to say, form the core of our understanding, the Western anglo-centric core of uh, historiography. And it's not mentioned in any of them. So my question to you is, has this been overlooked purposely by anglo-centric historians creating the Wellington myth?
2: Another brilliant question from Ed there. Um, In a a sense, I'm inclined to say quite possibly. I would need to check Omen for a a start. There would probably also be a need to check Fortescue. Uh, For folks who aren't familiar, Omen wrote a seven-volume History of the Peninsula War. John Fortescue wrote a multi-volume History of the British Army. There are faults with both, Um, but certainly Omen would be a, a starting point in terms of detail about Rodina I would be surprised
1: the, if the reason I didn't look at those right now I was looking at what's the collective historiography that's used and unless you're professional you'll go back to foreskew but if you're just learning about this you're like liable to pick up Elting or Chandler or Muir right So I'm just surprised it wasn't in any of them. Sorry to to interrupt.
2: No, 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 that's that's absolutely fine. Um, I think you're absolutely right. I I guess my approach to this was thinking about the thinking of those who were forming the historiography. So if somebody was to write about Wellington's career in the Iberian Peninsula and hadn't consulted Omen, you would ask some serious questions about why that might be the case. so omen I, I would be astonished if omen doesn't give it some coverage because omen gives pretty much everything coverage that's why he wrote so many volumes and they're all hundreds of pages long um certainly i think people will have been seduced by the wellington kind of story of success because there is a, an argument about momentum to be made if you want to construct that narrative isn't there you know this idea of a guy who never suffers a setback and he's facing all of these variables and it's it, he's overcoming the impossible odds. And despite everything, he gets to France before any of the other coalition powers. That's quite a seductive kind of narrative to, to draw together. So I think you're probably onto something there. Um, certainly when Redina was first mentioned to me, I went, what? What's Redina? And you look at it and you go, well, this is, this is poor by one so, you know, so what, what goes wrong here? Um, I think there's a good book to be written about Redina, frankly. Um, Marcus has mentioned Burgos, Burgos is much better known, but then perhaps that's because it's tied in with the Salamanca story, you've got the very obvious implications of everything that goes wrong with Burgos, namely, cutting and running for the Portuguese border, there's no kind of smoothing that over. Um, So I I think that that, that's a very valid point, and I think this is why I was so keen for us to have this discussion, because I said at the start of Wellington month, I'm not interested in cult Wellington. I want all of the, I want the warts and all, to paraphrase Cromwell, um, another individual who I've got very little time for, um, but that's by the by. Um, I was going to say, Paris is there and non-existent, hopefully. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll get Marcus's take on um, the historiography thing in just a moment, but there are some rebuttals that I've got for both of you. I'm going to start with rebuttals for Ed, if I may. Um, Firstly, you mentioned nutrition and discipline, and yes, I know, folks, you're bored of the discipline discussions, I'm very sorry, but this is relevant, so I'm going to excuse myself. Um, To what extent does Wellington ultimately have zero choice? And what I'm getting at there is that he's in in the proverbial place between a a rock and a hard place um, when it comes to command. Yes, he knows the reality of how soldiers operate. Yes, he knows that if they haven't got food, they are going to plunder because they need to fight. He does what he can to source that food, as Marcus has outlined already. Obviously, in plenty of occasions, that's not enough. As you've shown, even what they were meant to get wasn't enough. It was therefore inevitable that they were going to plunder. However, when they do plunder, that creates an inherent problem that actually is part of a much bigger issue in the British army as a whole which is image, which is PR. And that's what Wellington is having to manage when it comes to these plundering instances. He knows the reasons for it, but if he does nothing about it, that creates a massive PR, inverted commas problem, because the, one of the, the big kind of propaganda successes for the Allied cause during this period is being able to highlight what the French are doing to Spain stripping the countryside, the murder, the rapes, the brutal reprisals. Yes, they give as good as they get from the Spanish guerrillas, but that doesn't excuse either side. The point is that Wellington can't afford that image. He needs to have that much more benevolent image that he can project. And so when somebody plunders, he has to go off at the deep end. And there are points where he seems absolutely apoplectic about some of these things because he knows that he needs to come back. And so there are cases in um, 1809 where he's going absolutely ballistic um, about troops from a particular division plundering beehives. And when I've discussed this with folks, they go, what's the deal with the beehives? Is Wellington like a crypto-environmentalist or something? And it's it's just that issue that he cannot solve. So I have gone off on one about Wellington and plunder, but let me put that to you first.
1: Well, I... I understand the operational difficulties that he was under. My issue is that within all his writings, he shows uh, little to no empathy of their situation. What you say publicly for a uh, campaign purpose, I got it. But what you feel and you understand about the men and their issues, he shows them the same level of, uh, I think, disdain in his personal writings that no one else but you know the recipient was gonna see. So how is it that, that that in regards to being a great leader of, Bill Putnam was a brigade commander from one of my students who's just about to get his uh, first star pinned on as a general. He told me that the art of leadership is all about developing subordinates and said, and I'm quoting him, getting soldiers to understand that you truly give a damn about them. And that's interesting, because that's his life's career at 25 years. That's the summation of what he thinks leadership is about. And, you know, there's ramifications with that on the battlefield. Uh, I'll just pose this question number two. How is it that Napoleon and the French could control charges and recalls? Wellington couldn't. I mean, he he, he makes some progress towards it, but never with the cavalry. And then he castigates the regimental commanders. And I don't understand how this lack of development and this lack of empathy towards the men should be in a, I think it goes in the debit side of his leadership assessment, that's all.
2: I'll just come back with with one thing. I'm going to leave the um, what you've just said there to, to Marcus. Um, but we talk about willing to uh, uh, what you know what he's saying officially uh, and we we've discussed already i won't reiterate that but and this is where again my research comes in look at the prosecution trends and actually when you consider the scale of the issue of plundering versus the number of individuals who were tried for said plundering there is a massive disparity in what's actually going on the british army is not prosecuting plundering and so the argument could be made and you know, people can wait until my PhD thesis is published before you know they can start to um, delve into the nitty gritty of this. But you could make the argument that actually the fact that Wellington is making examples because he has to, but does and, and he pushes all the way. You know, at I'm, I'm, no point am I going to say that Wellington was not a flogger. He absolutely was. Um, that he wasn't trying to find ways to punish more because he completely was and was campaigning directly to the British government to get changes and eventually secured them, but the fact that there is a limitation on how much is being um, prosecuted when it comes to plundering probably shows at the very least the scale of the challenge that he's facing, i.e. there isn't this culture of following through on the stick, so he's got to be verbal with the stick, and equally to what extent is Wellington actually demonstrating discretion when in instances after Badahoff and Theodad Rodrigo and to a lesser extent San Sebastian, the individuals responsible are not brought to justice and Wellington could have made an issue of any one of those three sieges and and held all of them, uh, all of their noses to the grindstone should he wanted to but didn't.
1: Excellent points and I can't wait till your book comes out Uh, but I think he used plunder as a carrot overtly after siege assaults, because that was the standard. I don't think it had anything to do with humanity. I think it was just a way to, to motivate the men to do what he needed them to do. But I'll, I'll shut up so Marcus can talk.
2: I, I would love to discuss that further with you, but that's a topic for another day, and we do need to bring Marcus back in.
1: Yes, the development.
4: I mean, to me, it's often summarized really as, as one person. Uh, out of, Out of his many subordinates. To me, Wellington's right hand was Hill. Hill, he gave proper independent command to uh, missions that, you know, really w- Wellington probably didn't like delegating to off into the hills to capture the bridges and the forts. And he certainly brought him on. And in effect, at Waterloo, I see him as far more a second in command than really Uxbridge, who was very sidelined. Uh, given a really difficult position, often because of the personal feelings between Uxbridge and Wellington, due to his elopement uh, with his sister. Uh, and Hill's given a core command, and I, I think Zach and I have pondered before and one of our many musings of what would happen if Wellington was taken out, and actually I think Hill would, it would have been really the, the person to have stepped into those boots, and he's brought on by Wellington. Wellington doesn't bring on many others. He's not good at bringing on subordinates. But then that we are thinking with modern minds, I think there, Ed. you know, the, the development's not there. The system is purchase rather than brilliance. Officers get to where they are because they've got money in their pockets or connections, really. And I'm not saying that is right. And in fact, I'm ardently against that. Uh, our our army is only really developing into a kind of a, a modern system that's not based upon snobbery in the last decade or two, really. It's it's taken a long time for certain regiments to to refute that. Uh, but that's just personal experience. Wellington's got to fight the current war, not the next war. And that's why we've got to give him some credit. Uh, he's got to win the war that he sees in front of him. And for you know the majority of this we're thinking of the peninsula. He's not worried about what's going to happen next and his legacy after that. Um, he does, you know, become commander-in-chief of the army and then he that's a separate issue. He's got to kind of fight the what battle he's winning and win it. And he wins it as well as he can. Um, the discipline issue, you've, you've covered far better. But yes, it's just always worth balancing. You know, he's got to keep up relations with the Spanish, as with, with the men. If he hangs all the men in an extreme act, he's got no men to fight the battle. And if he ignores them all, then he's got the Spanish turning against him, who were his enemies only probably two years ago. So he's got such a hard tightrope, is my is my summary of that. Um yes he doesn't bring people on as alluded to earlier you know a company commander had very little um, independent command they only really had authority at a low level so wellington's kind of been a product of that system and he carries on enforcing it and it is hard for militaries to reform out of those systems especially when in a current conflict um is my is, in effect my my defense of wellington for for this chapter
2: there are some fair points there um, not least the fact that this is a much bigger problem that as people will have heard me talk about in the past you know the Duke of York who is the commander-in-chief of the army at this point is having to fight with all the way through and I have this kind of vague hypothesis in my head that when he is forced to resign the post in 1809 uh, due to the Marianne Clark scandal and then resumes it a few years later I believe there is actually a continuity in his efforts to try and reform the system, particularly implemented on the discipline side, once he returns, that we would actually have seen happen much sooner. And so it is important to raise the fact that this is a cultural problem that is embedded within what is fundamentally an Ancien Regime army. Contrast that massively with the Napoleonic army. And you've got two very different systems. And this is part of the reason why, when we go back to Ed's point about how comparisons are problematic, This is why these comparisons are quite challenging and often quite counterproductive. So I completely agree with you on what you say there, Ed, in terms of that desire to rank individuals and why it doesn't work out because sometimes you are comparing apples and oranges. Um, I wanna pick you up though on the, the delegation element, Marcus, and take this back to something that you acknowledged earlier, which is that lack of an overwhelming victory, that inability to take an army off the table, inverted commas, in Spain or Portugal. Um, To what extent is that actually Wellington's own doing through a refusal to delegate, i.e. because individuals aren't used to taking their own initiative because of the way in which he's run the army, he is therefore never able to achieve that Napoleon-esque style victory that characterizes some of Napoleon's more famous um, victories? I'm not sure, again
4: kind of, as you say, Wellington is is the guilty party here. This is the system that he's presented, he's inherited. Uh, there are lots of examples um, for myself, you know, looking at, at Porto. He has Murray go upstream to cut off the French retreat, and then he holds fire. And it isn't until the cavalry kind of go in under, under Stuart and do their own thing but the king's German legion are held back and there's no excuse why Murray goes forwards you know he's later um, relieved of most of his uh, important commands at least um it, I don't feel that is down that is always down to Wellington that is down to some of these men's nature to be cautious uh, we have we have cautious officers we ha- we have ambitious officers and we have ones who are willing to gamble uh, there's, there's a whole range uh, in between, as there's so, there's so many people uh, to name as part of that. Uh, Thomas Graham, you know, going on the attack, uh, but works with Wellington far less because he's often down in the Cadiz Theatre. Uh, that's Lord Lindof, Thomas Graham. Um, he's a very, very ambitious officer on the attack and is far less cautious as part of the whole system. So is Wellington guilty? No, I, I still think the system is one that has bred this into it. People are waiting for orders. The system requires written orders often rather than verbal. And that is the army's way of fighting for too long. Not that it's a right system, and I'm not defending the system. In fact, it you know is one that was in need of overhauling, but it was one that Wellington, with his kind of tenacity, his energy, his kind of V de G, of getting round the battlefield and, and handing out those written orders um, to many men or appearing, you know, behind squares and and giving those orders out when people need them at the most. And, we you know, we say, now, Maitland, now is your time. He probably didn't say that, but he certainly encouraged the guards at Mont-Saint-Jean at the critical moment. There's multiple accounts of him being there and doing that. That was the really critical moment. Um Yes, he doesn't delegate, but there's certain elements where Wellington really does go above and beyond. And the one that goes to me beyond that is his exploring officers. His exploring officers are his intelligence gatherers, and they get quite a broad remit to go behind enemy lines in uniform and gather intelligence and act upon it. That means we've got certain um, characters, and the one that always goes to me is Colonel Waters. Uh, Colonel Waters is really integral in Porto, uh, but he comes across a a captured documents in Spain that are being held by the Spanish and they won't release them, and purchases them out of his own pocket. That actually is the intelligence that allows Sir John Moore to actually remove his army to Corona before they're um, captured off and and basically defeated there in, in mid Spain, not far from Salamanca. So having these men go off, go into the enemy territory, it allows that kind of independence, and Wellington trusts these men hugely. Um, when Waters is captured, for example, um, Wellington brings his baggage with him, uh, and he, when Waters reappears after escaping the French captors, he frankly basically says to Waters, "I knew you, I knew you'd be back." Um, so it's a different type of level that within the army there is the discipline that's needed for different reasons whether that's on the battlefield or looting off the battlefield and then they have the independent commands which you know we joke about as being kind of fictionalized within sharp that that didn't happen he didn't send riflemen into the hills to go and be special forces but what he did have was these intelligence officers working with the guerrillas uh, both Portuguese and Spanish to win a separate war and those men he trusted with independent commands.
2: Ed I'm going to hand it straight over to you.
1: Just quickly I, I think there's a Discrete difference between and, and the need for intelligence officers to have independence and having battlefield down to captains, majors, and even lieutenant colonels being trained. I understand the system, but a system of purchase and a system led by a micromanager. And I will quote this profoundly uh, erudite fellow named Zach White on one of his previous podcasts, who said- Why wouldn't well, he
2: sounds like an absolute fool? I, I wouldn't trust him for a moment.
1: He said, Wellington was the ultimate micromanager. And in that construct of the regimental system with many of them, the officers being there by money, etc., that would call out to me for a greater need to develop them. And had he done so, maybe he wouldn't have had to go square to square and give precise orders maybe they would have known better to do their jobs. And I'm talking not the generals, I'm talking the lieutenant colonels, majors, and even captains. And that's where I think there's a difference in a battlefield need and a intel officer. Okay, let me
2: touch on one more thing on the military side. Um, Being very conscious that we've been talking for almost an hour now about the military, and I do want to talk about the political in due course. Um, we've touched on it a little already. Um, Wellington the snob, that infamous quote, the scum of the earth, I'm not going to go into great depths about my thoughts on that scum of the earth quote. I've done that on another podcast, folks, go back and listen to it if, you're, if you want my take on it. We're not here for my take, we're here for your takes, uh, Marcus and Ed.
1: Marcus, they can, can read my book.
2: Precisely. Um, Marcus, let's have your take. You've said this already. Wellington, he's a snob, right? Wellington is. Wellington's a huge snob.
4: And, um, you know, if people are listening to this and they haven't uh, read Ed's book or actually listened to Zach's uh, podcast, On the Scum of the Earth, like kind of press pause now and and go away and order that book and uh, listen to that podcast. The podcast is excellent. The book's excellent. So that's my plug. Um, Yeah, Wellington's a huge snob. And this is really important, not just um, for the army, uh, but later on in his political career. Uh, But he does have time for the men you know the 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 reason that there's a uh, an urban legend about tommy atkins and it is it is mythical um but it comes along for anyone who doesn't know that wellington came across a dying soldier uh, probably at vermier and uh, remembered his name and put that in the army example as thomas atkins and that's still to this day we call british army toms or tommy's and um, tommy's first of all War flame and um, you know today we still call them toms and it, wellington did have a, a really bizarre personal touch with soldiers uh, he wasn't warm to them he didn't get them to cheer him like Napoleon did. He didn't go up and tug the earlobes like Napoleon did. He didn't uh, pomp around on a grey horse like Napoleon did, but he was still loved by them. They said they preferred to see Wellington than 20,000 reinforcements. And I think that's really important. He also wept. He wept at Waterloo and he wept after the sieges and seeing his men dead. So I think he, because he shared the campaigns and the hardships, he he understood what the men were going through. The scum of the earth, um, you know, that's largely because of Victoria because of his frustrations at the looting, uh, and he's he's writing there in anger. And everyone goes, oh, he called his men scum, he hates his men. No, as mentioned before, really, he, he's hating the this lack of this total victory that he could have had at rounding up Joseph Bonaparte's uh, battle. His men's looting is a constant thorn on his side, as you've both really well covered. But he doesn't hates his men, he hates their actions. It also has that interesting uh, effect that, you know, these men do come from often the this, this stereotypical downbroken um, class or, you know, they're down and out in luck. They've joined the army because they have to. The army's largely made up of Irishmen who actually probably dislike the British crown but are fighting for it because they need to feed themselves and pay a wage, and he covers that. Yet Wellington later on ends up as one of the champions of the the charity of St. Patrick's in London, which supports down and out Irishmen in London. So he can see these men through Catholic emancipation. He champions, you know, an underclass in Britain, which very few people actually care about. And there's no need, inverted commas on podcast, to reform them because they don't have a strong political voice they can't overturn this thing themselves. And they don't have this champion within the monarchy. And um, the Prince Regent basically seems to hate having the idea of Catholics in power. And they don't have any, they have no um, seats within parliament, uh, at least not openly anyway. And Wellington forces this through. He is championing, not exactly an underdog, but a second class citizen. Wellington is you know, a literal snob. He, he raises up the ranks. From the son of an earl, so a, a low-ranking aristocratic, the, the second son as you know, middle son as that, and to a duke to the, to the highest realm, to advisor to the king and then to Queen Victoria and in basically one of the closest confidants of the royal family. That is in itself going to bring its own snobbery. Uh, I can only imagine if one of ourselves was put into that feet, you, know, you would maybe turn your back on some of your former friends but yet wellington ends up holding correspondence with some of his closest friends and his closest friends wives who his you know he trusts his wives with interior design more than men because he thinks that women have a better eye for detail than his friends who sent sometimes bore him over dinner talking about military history boy would we suffer um wellington You know, I can kind of hold the snobbery. He has very busy times, um, if we're talking about social snobbery, uh, very busy time, and he's micromanaging, and not much, you know, hours in the day. He needs to get answers quickly, and he has to make very quick um, assessments of people's um, character and ability. And if you're not useful to him there and then, you know, frankly, he might come back to you later or not at all. Uh, We see some really interesting cases, though, where... um, we actually have a Mr. Fleming, is a, one of my Apsley House anecdotes, and Mr. Fleming was wrongly invited uh, to, to dinner. It was the wrong Mr. Fleming was invited to Apsley House to dine with the Duke of Wellington, uh, and Fleming's was asked by the Duke's Secretary to, to not turn up, in effect, because it was the wrong invite and it was sent in error, but Fleming insisted and turned up anyway and spoke to Wellington. Wellington had time for this complete stranger in his home, and Fleming enjoyed his conversation with the Duke so much that he sent a portrait of um, Napoleon uh, to, to Apsley House and it remains there to this day. Uh, so it shows that this complete stranger turned up in complete error. I mean, brazen of Mr. Fleming to, to turn up after being told not to. But Wellington still had time to talk to a Mr. Uh, Fleming. You know, he holds no aristocratic rank or military rank. So Wellington the snob, absolutely. But again, as earlier, he has his flaws but he is still human and still has some moments. I wouldn't say he's warm, cuddly, or lovable, but there's certainly moments that sometimes you can like Wellington too.
2: A couple of things I would come back on you come back to you on. Uh, the, the first being, the scum of the earth thing, he says it on four separate occasions, so he does believe it. Um, uh, in a number of instances, much later, uh, much after the, after the war, and he kind of uses it as a backhanded compliment. Um, but um, in relation to what you say about snobbery and social snobbery, um, I would also add that Wellington unquestionably preferred, it wasn't just about competence. Yes, certainly competence was a big factor in how he viewed people, but it's famously said, and we've come across this quite a number of times, that Wellington preferred talent with a title to just plain talent. Yeah, no, the only other thing is, I mean, this is tongue-in-cheek
4: purposely, but you know, having having worked with soldiers and I don't know what Ed's experience is the American army, but I can think of worse terms than scum for some of the soldiers. Um, and soldier are not necessarily always going to be the nicest people. Um, you've got to get dirty men to do dirty deeds, and killing one's other humans is not a particularly nice task. So are, are the British Army scum? I'm not sure if I'd use the term myself, but uh, you know they they do come from all different backgrounds, so uh, they are not all going
1: to be lords and gentlemen, certainly. Ed I think Marcus ventures into very dangerous ground there're making that assessment about soldiers. And I can go into that with both ardor and uh, emotion, if you would like me to, but to assess and argue that soldiers are in any way.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Leaning towards these deeds and that they're hard men and are Is nonsense. We take everyday folk, and we ask them to do extraordinary things, and they carry that moral injury for them the rest of their lives. We don't find the scum of the earth, and I do not know a single soldier that remains in the ranks that any of my students would would allow to remain in the ranks that we would call scum. So I'll, I'll say about that.
2: Okay, and what about Wellington's attitude towards his troops, Ed?
1: I think I'd lean more in your direction. I think he held an aristocratic, uh, very hierarchical snobbish view of who had merit just generally speaking. And I think you've already addressed that. So these men who were unemployed manual laborers, unemployed weavers and tailors had literally very little overall value to him except as what they could do for him I see that throughout his writings, he has more disdain and respect. I'll uh, every once in a while, he'll give them a compliment, but if you read through all his dispatches, they, both up the chain during uh, the official dispatches and in his writings, he rarely ever, they rarely ever contain any fulsome praise for his efforts, which are sometimes near superhuman, especially at the sieges. Uh, the duplicity though, regarding to me the care and feeding and their fitness. I find that to be an unsavory snobbish viewpoint. His men, his leaders, they were eating well, but when you, in his letters, and I can cite them to you by day, when you write something on the same day to different leaders saying totally different things, for example, and I I won't go into my book here and read it, but there are letters where he acknowledges he hasn't had the funds to feed the men anything, much of anything in two weeks, two weeks, and yet he'll write another letter that same day to a different uh, individual up the chain saying that there's absolutely no reason why these men are misbehaving and he's, and he's f- full up past the neck with their, their behaviors and their, it's just part of their lowly natures and he can't control them. And that's, that's where it gets me, because he could have been honest with that other person and said, look, their behaviors are predicated on the fact that we're not feeding them well. And I care about them more as a, I'm not saying it was strictly as an expedient that he would keep them in fighting fitness, but he doesn't. Because what's the average? About 30% of the British Army is in hospital. And the men never wanted to be there because they couldn't afford it because they had to pay for it themselves. If my guys right now would have soldiers in the hospital in their unit, at 3%, they'd likely lose their job. At 30%, just reflects how hard it was on these men on this day-to-day existence. And why couldn't he have just, I I don't think he acknowledges a connection between their privations and their behavior. And I don't understand that seems... um, seems removed, as if they don't have a great deal of value. So was this was this an aristocratic lack of empathy? Was it, I don't know, I understand he cried, but was he crying about, because of stress, the loss of his subordinate leaders, the ones he knew well, I don't know, but I've never read that he broke down and he he lamented the the men under his command. Of course, neither did Napoleon ever do that. So uh, I understand but even in, in the recent losing 15 Marines, our commander got on TV and he started tearing up about losing 15 guys, 13 guys. And that showed a connection. And I know it's a different time period, but to, to not later when you have the opportunity to write about it, to be honest about it. I don't see that. So I, I do see disdain.
2: Okay, let me move the conversation forward, um, because I promised that we would talk politics, and we should talk politics. Um, Because a lot of folks are guilty of focusing on the military at the exclusion of the political. Um, I've gone on the record in the past, likening Wellington's career after Waterloo to that final season of Game of Thrones. Um, No spoilers incoming here, folks, don't worry, but to explain what I mean, you know, there are moments of brilliance but generally it's just a crushing disappointment after so much promising stuff that's gone before. Marcus, can you and I at least agree that Wellington was ultimately a poor politician? He says in one of the most leading questions of this entire debate. (laughs) I'm more inclined
4: to agree with, with Ed's previous comments. He, no, I don't agree. He was a poor politician. I agree. He was ill suited for politics. As I said, right near the beginning he was a he was an officer he was a soldier uh he was a product of the army and that's really what suited him his status after war salute and the titles for i I use the quote leadingly kind of saving europe um from bonapartism he was at the height of his fame and he used that where to go after that you know he's field marshal he's duke the only place to go to that really is politics and he had that in his sights from buying up the house to the connections he made and the titles he gained uh politics was the natural avenue not to ru- not to rule a country but to attempt to to run it um, and you know with that brings itself uh, its own connections and its own lavish lifestyle and wellington liked to be in society it's um it's one of his, you know, attributes. He he liked to host. He, he liked to have those people around him. But a, a poor politician, no, I would say he was a poor reader of politics. He refused to accept the ultimate reforms that should have taken place and was ignoring the will of the people for the great reforms that were afoot. However, uh, he you know, he got through Catholic emancipation. The, the effort of that lies with him and really ultimately with Wellington because it wasn't, uh, wasn't wanted, as I said before, but also he pushed it through. The Prince Regent actually was probably going to, well, that, that, sorry, then King George, um, was then going to refuse to sign um, the Royal assent, which had not been done for centuries, really. He was going to refuse to sign it and put it into law because of his will against it. And Wellington stood there in front of the king's desk and said, if you don't sign, I will walk out that door and you will not have a prime minister. And it was that, you know, kind of blackmail of the king that got Catholic emancipation through. And that that's strong leadership. Zach and I disagree on the next point I'm going to make, which is um, Wellington's... Uh, under Wellington was uh Robert Peel's uh, first reforms you do realize that i, I will let I you say it's... this
2: but you're not yeah. having this point I'm
4: gonna <laughs> and then and then you can disagree with me afterwards and that's you know that's the whole point of these debates is we're all allowed our opinions um but you're the host so you're going to be totally unbiased and under Wellington he formed a partnership that he would run the House of Lords, the the, R Opera House, and Sir Robert Peel would run the lower house, the House of Commons. And Peel, as Home Secretary, put through some of the most important uh, reforms to our penal laws. Uh, Not only it was under Peel that in in Wellington's premiership that uh, we have the Met Police, the Peelers, uh, you know, that's why they were known as the Peelers, the Bobbies, Um, and that was under Wellington's premiership. But they've hugely reformed penal laws to remove a huge amount of capital punishment. No, yes, they, they changed that to um, deportation to Australia uh, and hard labor, uh, but it did, you know, remove a lot of capital punishment. And it was the start of a wave, you know, deportation for, for six years rather than death penalties or for 10 years or however long it was, is a step in the direction of, you know, long-term prison sentences as opposed to death reforms. And I genuinely believe that, you know, Wellington, and Peel had a close relationship and a good working relationship that that is a fact but I genuinely believe and it's an opinion that, that Wellington was allowing this to go through Wellington was I can see Zach smirking it's hilarious and Wellington allowed this to go through as part of his agreement that he would run the House of Lords and you know it has to go through both houses before it goes to royal assent and so therefore Wellington was a great politician or at least no no he wasn't he was an able politician no, uh, yeah, he was an able politician. He was not a great politician uh, at all. And, you know, we see, we are always, uh, you know, have a problem that we see very few great politicians. And so Wellington certainly wasn't one. Uh, it's, it's always difficult because, uh, you know, I want Wellington to go on and do great things. Where Wellington was a, able, and I'm not going to say great, where Wellington was able was as, as an advisor and as a royal confidant, as a statesman, as an ambassador for Britain and as an advisor to royalty was where his real ability lay. And that was kind of going on to his fame. And there were many, many examples of that. Um, this, the shame that I don't have as the evidence is seeing uh, now William Hague, now Lord Hague, speech at Apsley House for the Duke of Wellington's 250th birthday and I do hope at some point he turns that into a paper if not a book in defense of Wellington's uh, ability as a prime minister that might be because his great great grandson was his host and stood in the room in front of him but it's one of my biggest regrets that I didn't get on my camera and record a 30-minute speech from Lord Hay who was a fantastic orator and in defense of Wellington's political abilities because I was uh, couldn't find anything as helpful for my preparations uh, let's say uh, the, the closest we have, really, I think, is uh, Richard Holmes's Iron Duke uh, biography, and that comes across with Wellington's ability to uh, pass the Catholic Emancipation Act. But as we all know, it comes down to Wellington's leadership style, that when he sits down famously to give his first cabinet meeting and gives his, his cabinet, his men, their orders, the famous quote is that they're then discussed, and he cannot understand why they are discussing the orders that they are given. So he is not really there for the right reasons. But my last defense of Wellington as a politician is that when he is put as prime minister a second time, he is offered the premiership, he turns it down uh, because the, the man for the job is in Rome. And so he acts as a caretaker prime minister. So he does know his own limitations at that point, that he is not the right person for the job. And I think that actually tells us more about his character than his kind of bombastic approach to ignore the great reform act, which is, you know, probably a, a worse defeat almost than not following up Salamanca.
2: Yeah. Fair, some fair points there. I noticed well adapted in terms of your arguments about uh, Robert Peel and introduction of the Metropolitan Police and also um, in relation to prison reform because in the past I know you sort of said well look Wellington's Prime Minister therefore surely responsibility lies with him for overseeing that and my argument has been with you in the past that actually this is Peel and it's Peel from way way before Wellington's even thinking about the Premiership Uh, as early as 1812 he is trying to push forward a series of reforms calling parliamentary inquiries and Select committees to examine issues surrounding prisons, surrounding um, punishment practices, and surrounding policing to try and find a way towards what becomes uh, the creation of the lights and the the wider reforms to the prison system, which are so sorely needed. Now, the counter argument that I know you've put forward in the past is that, ah, yes, but you know, Wellington, he's there, he's PM, but that presupposes. And I know you want to come back at me and I, I will um allow you to to respond on this because i'm not going to be a napoleon about it um the, your your kind of suggestion presupposes that there is this governmental program that the pm decides this is going to be government policy and then it is pushed through as a cohesive whole actually really up until much further into the 19th century that's not the case when it comes to parliamentary reform. Parliamentary reform is pushed forward by individuals, and sometimes you get reforms pushed through by people who, people who are on the opposition, who take advantage of opportunities within Parliament to turn around and put forward certain proposals, get that passed by the body of support within the room, and then it's carried. So Wellington's contribution to the formation of the Metropolitan Police, as far as I'm concerned, is he just doesn't turn around and say, no, he doesn't get in the way. And I'm not gonna give him credit for that, but I will let you respond.
4: Yeah, he yeah he doesn't get in the way. And I think that's really important. You know, he's um, he's a Tory with a big T, as it was then the party, and they are the, the party of uh, prohibiting change, as we see the great reform act. And I'm, I'm sure it's probably gonna, I'm, I'm ready for that's probably gonna be the center of Ed's argument and I, I pretty much support that to be honest. Um, And, you know, he doesn't he doesn't block and where he could have blocked if he blocked it through the upper house and nothing would have happened. Um, It's all Peel. Yeah, it's all Peel. And, you know, before I would have defended a bit more. I I think when we we talked about it first, you know, I was at a certain position. and I like to um, play an extreme to bounce one off the other. And uh, you know, also we we debate these things over Twitter, and our, our limit of characters is um, is minute. uh, we don't have a, a three hour podcast to delve deep into it. Um, but I do genuinely believe that yes, yeah, it's all peels, it's all peels, energies and ideas. But Wellington could block, and he didn't, and therefore he's deserving of some credit with that, because not only does he not block, as he gets it through uh, the Lords, uh, and the Lords are genuinely actually going to be more conservative with a small C than. Uh, actually, the rest of the toy party as well. Ed, so, yeah, so thank to you. You. It's, good, it's good to see, you know, our own opinions develop over our, I don't know how many years of friendship as well.
2: Ed?
1: I think Marcus has been both measured and very articulate in regards to Wellington as a politician. When we're talking about the penal reform, I always felt it was Peel. But at least Wellington, as you both described, did not get in the way. Uh, when I examined this and tried to do it in some detail, I always looked for patterns, I looked for, for uh, progressions and regressions, and um, the, the stumbling block for me was why in the world did he really get behind the Catholic Reform Act? You know, why personally? What, what was going on for him? Because I could not find principles more as much as I found practicality. So while we give him credit for that, and I think we should, uh, I always got the feeling in his writings that he, he did this because he thought it couldn't be avoided. And there was a fear of perhaps eventual insurrection. And he does mention the civil war in his House of Lords speech. Uh, so a sense of duty as Zach White has called it uh so i give him credit for it but I, even then it seemed to be a measured political practicality rather than a driven uh endeavor and then as he progresses 1832 of course we don't need to go into his opposition to the, the reform bill because that's what his party like i i keep i keep seeing him as a man of contradictions uh 1833 he's against the uh Jewish Civil Disabilities Repeal Bill. He, he stated that England is a Christian country and a Christian legislature. I mean, he has these, these mindsets, this uh, uh, a specific way of looking at things that almost squeezes the humanity out of a lot of things. But he wasn't a good politician, but he wasn't as ardently cory as i thought he could be ardently so i'm going to give him half a pass on this i think Mar- marcus has argued it well i'm not going to kill him like i do on some of the other things so hope that doesn't disappoint you zach
2: that clang is the sound of my dog hitting the floor for the first time in today's <laughs> session um i was ex- if there's if there's one stick that i will use relentlessly to beat Wellington, it is the great reform bill opposition to democracy and that's not to suddenly hold Napoleon up as a great paragon of uh, virtue when it comes to democracy because I've said many times I feel that democracy is fundamentally flawed because of the way in which votes are inflated and and so on. Um, And I don't suggest that you know you can have a, a democratic, truly democratic state, if the way in which you implement that democracy is fundamentally undermined in order to inflate the impression of your vote regardless of whether or not that vote is legitimate and yes napoleon did have the numbers um but on the flip side wellington opposing any form of enfranchisement for people based on wealth that is snobbery of to go back to our earlier point that is snobbery of the highest value um, and there's there's no sugarcoating that there's no um going oh but he didn't really well he did you know that was the end of his premiership and i think it was the right rightly so you know there were the winds of change, as it were, were sweeping across Europe during this period. You see the revolutions in 1848, you see earlier revolutions in France over these kinds of things. Um, so, you know, not a good look on, by any means. Um, both of you want to come back at me uh, on that, so I'll let Ed go first.
1: Go ahead, Ed. Go ahead. This, I, I totally agree, and you should know this is just debater fatigue. I have an entire page of notes on that. I thought that was such a given that I didn't need to go into the detail of why it was pretty abhorrent. So I, I failed there. I just decided not to delve into that page. So that's my apologies because I wasn't not needed. overlooking that by any means. I just thought that's that's a given. That's a that's a major, that's a, it's a fundamental flaw. So sorry for not, no, i was so. also aware of time.
2: Yeah. yeah, we're uh, at an hour and a half already, and we're still quite away from dumb folks. So, uh, if you're having a drink this whilst you're listening to this, you may need to pour yourself another one. Marcus? Well, that sounds like a good idea.
4: Uh, mine's a gin, please. Um, so, yeah, I think one of actually the, you know, as well as Wellington enabling uh, peel through and then also not accepting the, the reins of premiership a second time you know being a caretaker so it was a nice you know stable government and uh, then I'm going to step aside in six weeks or so uh, was a very good call. Uh, the other thing you know I always wonder whether he kind of went in uh, the 1830 when he, when he left. Uh, he knew the Great Reform Act was then going to follow through and it's kind of that thing of going oh, if I want to give Wellington too much credit which obviously I'm, I'm guilty of it would be saying that potentially that he stepped aside knowing the Reform Act would come through, but not wanting to be the one who passed it himself. Um, but it's a, that's a hypothetical, really, theory. Um, but, you know, he's, he's working for the Tory. The only other thing to be said for him is when he first goes into politics, uh, right after Waterloo, is actually he goes in with the understanding that actually he would be uh, apolitical. So it's a really strange situation that he joins the, uh, the cabinet as master of ordnance, uh, but does not join the Tory party. He doesn't actually want to have party politics. And he kind of slowly gets suckered in. And I, I respect him more for the beginning and the ends of his political career, almost, with not wanting to be member of a political party, which I had some personal sympathies uh, with. But And at the end, just only... Well, his political career actually does continue to his dying breath, bless him. But his, you know, the end where he accepts the reins uh, for a limited time period to allow some stability in the nation, than actually his his main premiership. Um, as a, otherwise, I, I largely agree with Ed. You know, it's it's really conflated where he wants to reform some areas and not others, and he blocks some things and enables others. It's it's a real kind of hodgepodge of policies and ideas and I think that only really comes with actually not being a career politician not being politicians that we kind of see ourselves today in Downing Street or whether that's you know on Capitol Hill in Washington and people who've manoeuvred themselves into those positions and know the the corridors of powers and how to work the system Wellington didn't and he just wasn't suited for the role I, I, you know, I like the fact that part of his story, he ends up as prime minister. It makes for kind of part of the tale, uh, but it's it's not his finest hour. He's he's far better off as commander in chief. um, Well, actually, even then, he's better off as. Mm, We'll get to that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's better off as a statesman-like role. Um, you know places have been like warden of the sinkports down at warmer castle it, with a residence and some and some light work to do and hosting queen victoria is a better suit for wellington unfortunately so but i still wouldn't say he was a poor politician he was poorly placed
2: okay let's move the, the conversation on because i am conscious of time we're at an hour and 30 already um, i'm very sorry that we only did about 20 minutes on wellington's politics but We do have other areas that we do need to cover, not least his personal life. Marcus, I'm going to allow you to try and sugarcoat this one, because I am exacting in my criticism of Wellington when it comes to his personal life. But I'll let you talk us through Wellington the family man. So off you go with your spin.
4: Yeah, this is the one I kind of had the most trouble thinking about preparing. I'm going to be going to be honest. Um, Wellington, you know, he was famous for his sharp wit and um, and his few close friends, but he was famously cold to his two sons, and he was not very warm to Kitty. So I'm going to put on here Wellington the Great, you know, defender hat uh, more than anything, and that kind of is my is my caveat here. Um, so his marriage to uh, Catherine uh, Pakenham. Uh, you know known as, I will refer to it as Kitty uh, Kitty uh, as his wife the the defense here really is that though they are very cold and it's a largely loveless marriage it is done through duty and honor really so uh, Wellington uh, then you know Arthur Wesley and Kitty meet uh, in Ireland when uh, Wellington is uh, working uh, near Dublin and he doesn't make a serious proposal you know it's not the kind of the full marriage proposal but he makes his intentions clear that he desires to marry her and she doesn't disagree however it's her family that say that he's beneath her which is quite a reversal of some of our snobbery earlier uh you know sometimes you can outsnob the snob maybe and uh you know as a middle son of really quite minor aristocracy uh he's not good enough for her um during that time, he doesn't give up and he, he goes to, to India. And yes, yeah, sorry, my, my story here is kind of chronological, is my defence. Um, and so he goes to India. Uh, they don't talk too much. And during that time, actually, she is engaged uh, by another man uh, she is proposed to. Uh, he comes back and they kind of sl- slightly start to renew the friendship. Uh, During that time, uh, she insists that they see each other in person before uh, they take the relationship any further. And she understands why. And it's because she's become quite ill during their time away. Time in India is almost a decade. And she, you know, she doesn't look very good after her. Um, And she and she is aware of this. Sadly, Wellington says to his brother, and it's a famous quote, she has grown ugly by Jove. Uh, not a flattering thing to say about one's fiance. However, he's in two minds, but his honour kind of dictates to on, and they are formally um, engaged and then uh, married in 1806, so after he's been home. And they, they have two sons in relatively uh, quick succession in uh, 1807, roughly. So after that, the relationship really isn't warm, especially after most of his military career. During his military career, he's a prolific writer. You know, um, both his sales as academics, we've gone through probably hundreds, if not thousands, of his letters uh, and his dispatches, and he's a really prolific writer, both in military terms and also to friends. To Kitty, poor Kitty, he's not. He writes to her very rarely, Uh, and she's quite disheartened by this. But she she has a comfortable life uh, back in England. Uh, However, she does not enjoy the fame that comes with being, you know, the wife of arguably one of Britain's most able military commanders ever. You know, she doesn't enjoy the attention. She certainly doesn't enjoy the attention when he comes home and then is in London or uh, with the fame. Uh, she, she prefers to live out in Stratford, say, in the country house, um, trying to enjoy quiet parties and a little bit. Uh, she doesn't enjoy the, the central focus, which is something Wellington does. You know, he likes hosting dinners with the Prince Regent or the King. Uh, he likes hosting the ambassadors from around the world to come to fantastic dinners at Apsley House. Uh, Kitty does not enjoy that. They are a poor match, really, is my main defence with that. They are not similar in character at all. However, my final defence um, is sadly Kitty, you know, grows quite ill, um, quite a lot before him. Uh, and in 1831, she's on her deathbed in Apsley House. And she she reaches up his, his arm and fills an armlet, like a effectively like a, a bracelet or a, a necklace that you wear around the top of one's bicep. And it was quite, quite popular in Georgian Britain. And she feels that this is a gift uh, there that she gave him earlier and he's still wearing it. And they say that literally in those last hours, they smile and they find each other. And Wellington's quote, uh, which is in uh, Richard Holmes's Iron Duke book, if anyone's looking for it, is that he says uh, to his confidants, that if she'd looked for it 20 years earlier, or for any of those 20 years, she would have found it. So there is some affection there from husband to wife. It's not a woman loving husband, and he has many dalliances with younger ladies who effectively throw themselves at him because of his fame. And also, he's a very well. Um, dressed chap, his nickname from the ladies was the Bo. You know, he is like Beau Brummel, uh, very, very well dressed and, and uh, quite striking features, if not handsome. He's very cold towards his his sons, and uh, his his son and heir says effectively that there never will someone be more disappointed that when the Duke of Wellington's announced and I will walk in for when he inherits the title as the second Duke of Wellington. Uh, he he joins the military and doesn't achieve any, any great feat. And I think his, his father is effectively just slightly disappointed in him. Uh, he's, Wellington, for many things, is effectively a self-made man. Uh, he goes off and forges this career. So my, my defence of Wellington's family life is more of a run-through, um, my one-sided one, run-through there. Um, he's cold, uh, but there is some affection there. He's just not
2: as good at showing it, really. I mean, you said it was a loveless marriage. She worshipped him. She loved him, just not in the way that he kind of wanted slash needed to be loved. Yeah, it, it
1: wasn't support
4: he wanted. He wanted someone to help host those balls and those parties. And she wasn't wanting to do that. She did it quite reluctantly. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a love-filled marriage, maybe, is a better phrase.
2: I mean, my argument would be that she loved him. He just didn't particularly love her and accept her for who she was. Um, but you know, I'm again got one eye on the time. Um, so Ed, Marcus yeah. kind of alluded to um, the fact that he was a serial adulterer. Um, nicely acknowledged it, but it, it's more than a small factor. Um, so. Wellington by no means being a faithful husband, how far should we allow that to cloud our judgment of the man, given that today we look at adultery in a certain way. Back then, they looked at adultery in a certain way, and yet adultery has always been and will always continue to be an aspect of marriages and and life.
1: I think it is an important component of who he is, because for me, again, he he fits the pattern of a man of contradiction. Uh, Marcus was again eloquent. He's cold to Kitty. He's cold to his children. To me, he's he was always cold to the rankers. But he's self-indulgent when it comes to these women. Now, as with the duel that he fights as prime minister, a man who's representing the nation as a soldier and you demand discipline amongst your men, you can, to me, this speaks when he allows himself the indulgence to break these laws within, had he been more consistent here, had he always, even though it was loveless, but he at least did his affairs discreetly, which he didn't do if he had shown some affection, but I don't see any of that. So that again, to me, goes back to the, the essence of the individual, but why does he allow himself? I don't know, I don't have the answer to that. Why does he allow himself the freedom to to act against societal rules, if you will, being a man of such great discipline? And he did so with this, this serial adultery and he did it with a a, uh, a great, verve, and I have a quote that I think early on, it was when he was being a diplomat, but uh, this is from Muir, and I'll, sorry, I'll just read it, As he was escorting Lady Shelley from their box at the opera, because that's how you keep it quiet, right? The crowd parted before them with the greatest respect and Wellington remarked in a gayest tone. It's a fine thing to be a great man, isn't it? So how much of this is, is narcissism is ego and so he couldn't get what he needed from kitty and this doesn't seem like the man who demanded the men starve because it was politically expedient or is it the same man who's just allowing himself more freedom than he allowed everyone else around you around him sorry just a thought
2: that's a a pretty damning. um Remark in return, <laughs>
4: Marcus. I'm, I'm going to field that straight <laughs> over fair. to you. I mean, yeah, it's, it's fair. You know, it, it mixes in with, uh, well, as Wellington the snob, you know, he, he wants the finer things in life. And those finer things are, you know, in, in Georgian society, unfortunately, often younger women, and sometimes those women are married. Um, he's a hypocrite uh, by that means, certainly. Um, we, we, you know, we see that in Wellington's uh, life. Uh, he's, he's particularly hypocritical around women, uh, but he also, the only thing also to say in his defense is he, he loves women. You know, he, he likes, he enjoys their company as friends, not only as lovers and he treats them relatively well. And it's something we don't see. I don't want to compare Wellington to Napoleon too much, uh, but you know, Napoleon treats women really badly. Uh, he doesn't seem to like them. Um, he just demands their attention, uh, but Wellington doesn't. You know they they're throwing himself uh, themselves at him. Uh, Less is known about his time in uh, Portugal and Spain. He's away for an, an, an India actually, for that matter. You know he's away for an incredible long period of time. It, it doesn't, you know, be it's not conducive to a, a stable relationship to to be away for you know seven years in uh, plus in the peninsula fighting. Um, it's just, you know, especially, especially with old-fashioned communication, uh, but he doesn't live up to it. I think it's part of his micromanagement uh, personality as he throws himself into the duty in front of himself. And he, when he thinks of home, he, he writes letters to his brothers, especially, and his, some of his friends and, and not his wife. Uh, he certainly has no, no thoughts of bringing her out there and no thoughts of ever returning home uh, to, to see her. Uh, that's just not part of it. Um, whether that makes him... You know less greats i mean it's difficult isn't it when we often talk about military men we focus on their military aspects and if we talk about other other great people whether men or women we we look at their contributions to society and their legacies and not so much their personal lives so it's it's a different aspect to look at um as i said at the beginning wellington was only human uh he you know doesn't deserve You know, complete adoration and worship, and I just find it—it's a really interesting aspect of his personal life. Um, But yeah, he's uh, certainly not without blame here.
2: No, as as you say, six years out in Spain and Portugal, relatively early on in their relationship, certainly didn't help the situation any, um, and certainly didn't help the situation with his children.
4: Just as we were coming on, I think his second son was born. A month or two, you know, he was born. It was, I think, the second son was born a month after he got on the boat for for Portugal. Well, for Spain, really, routed to Portugal. So he didn't have a lot of time, especially to to be a father either. You know, he, I don't think he would have recognised his his children. He would have come back for um, the Convention of Sintra inquiry. Uh, the amount of time he would have spent with them would have been limited to uh, less than six months, and you know, he would have spent more probably time with Horse Guards than at family home so, and then away again, so he certainly would yeah. have recognised those babes in arms then as being young boys um, would have led to a really uh, difficult relationship, and not enough has been written about Wellington the father uh, there is some focus on on Kitty, and we know more about, you know, she was, she was a really prolific diary keeper, so we know lots more about her, uh, but The second duke can actually then therefore the third duke kind of just just fade out. We know very little about themselves. And if anyone ever, it won't be, it won't be myself, uh, sadly. uh, But anyone ever wanted to delve into that, that would be fascinating. You know, I'd I'd love to know more about those men.
2: Yeah. And and equally, the the kids wouldn't have known who he was. You know, they would have had no living memory of the guy. um, And that wouldn't have helped the situation either. We've touched on hypocrisy. And I was going to, with one eye on the time, Uh, kind of skate over this but seeing as we we're in that realm let's just very very briefly touch on what i think is probably the most extreme example of hypocrisy in in wellington's entire career which is the duel with winchelsea in march 1829 for folks who aren't familiar there is a duel um, between the two of them insults are exchanged Um, and the reason that i turn around and say this is hypocritical is that wellington as commander of the army, knew that dueling was banned amongst officers. You've got to bear in mind that this is a guy who has signed off on courts-martial and so has seen trials of officers and has approved um, cashierings in some cases when it's come to dueling, and yet he doesn't just agree to the duel with Winchelsea, he's the one who sends the challenge. Now as prime minister at the time, Surely that's exceptionally reckless behaviour, Marcus.
4: It's reckless in in the extreme. Um, Part of me with a modern hat on almost wants to respect him because I'd love to see some modern politicians uh, step forward and, you know, rather than insulting each other across the across Parliament, which is tiresome on TV, uh, kind of put their money where their mouth is. Um, It's kind of it, that Georgian hat on is, the, you know, to making a man. And what dueling about really was an act of honour. Um, and that's what we see uh, with his duel at Battersea Common, where it takes place, is he uh, turns up when Chelsea uh, fires in the air and Wellington fires wide. There's a, some debate about whether Wellington tried to fire and missed him, but he does actually mention on his way there that he intends to, to fire wide. So it's all about honour. Uh, it's hypocritical in the extreme that he, um, you know, was rebuking officers beforehand, uh, but he's not in an active army role. Then let's remember that you know he's he's not on the front line, he's not on campaign. He's uh, has a rank, of course, uh, but he's in the political sphere and he's kind of at the height of this. What is interesting is that it relates earlier to what we we're talking about is the Catholic Emancipation Act, and without going too far into it, because I find Georgian. Politics interesting, and I know from Twitter a handful of people do, but maybe the majority don't. Is it's all around um, the insults following Catholics and, dare I say, like bigotry against uh, Catholics at the time um, from the British aristocracy. And here we see Wellington defending it. It's largely related to uh, King's College, um, London, and trying to pass through allowing Catholics there uh, within status. So it's very complicated. Uh, it's it's fascinating. Uh, is it hypocritical? Yes. Am I going to berate Wellington for it though? It, probably less. I, I you know Wellington defender. That's what I'm here for. Um, yes. Yeah, I think um, I, you know you you laid the task for me, so I must defend him. Really, um, you know this is this is why this is what I do. Uh, In my spare time, it's my hobby. Um, I don't get paid for it. I enjoy it. Um, Yeah, so Wellington Wellington issues this, and he's got to kind of go through with it as well. He turns up. It's all about honour. Neither of the gentlemen intend to kill each other. I think Winchelsea would be a fool to try to intend to harm Wellington. He is, you know, yes, he's Prime Minister at the time, but he's also basically the most famous Briton in, in England, but outside the royal family. And always struggled to find a comparison to Wellington's fame. He'd be as recognisable up there with your your Brad Pitts and your you know your Prince Williams. He, that's how recognisable he would be. And I I really struggled to find a modern comparison in the world. If anyone's got one, please shout up. Um, but he he's really up there, and you know with that comes his his legacy of Waterloo, Assay, and the Peninsula. It's an interesting chapter in Wellington's life is all I keep coming back down to. It's, it's part of that Hollywood story that has never been made because they want to commission another one about Boney. You know, we are long overdue a, you know, a Netflix adaptation or you would have been HBO. You know, let's get Amazon to pick up a 10-part series about Wellington's life after Waterloo. Um, I would love for something to start on the 19th of June or something to start at 8pm on the 18th of June, 1815, and to follow through to 1852. That would make my day. I don't know. I, th- I think you two gents would watch it. I know your listeners of the Napoleonicists would uh, watch it, but I don't know how many other tens of thousands would. But I think that's what we're overdue. It's it's a fantastic tale. A prime minister that takes a duel. It's, it's the last one. It's the last prime minister who issues a duel with pistols on Battersea uh, Common. I mean...
2: But
1: maybe
2: yeah. there's a reason I mean, just on um, the, the documentary thing, yes, I completely agree. Um, in fact, funnily enough, I was talking to a TV production team for another project recently, and I did sort of try and drop in this idea that, you know, there needs to be um, a documentary on Wellington. We've had plenty on Napoleon um, vis-a-vis Andrew Roberts and plenty of others. Um, but one on Wellington's life would actually make for some interesting um, listening. But... I mean, you touched on it yourself. He retains that commission. He is still a general, no less, in the British Army. And the regulations are clear. The regulations haven't changed. Hypocrisy. Um, I, I suspect we're all in
1: agreement. Ed? And civil law says this is illegal. And I don't think as the main lawmaker, you know, the prime minister, you can go, yeah, but I'm making an exception for me. And I just find it to be, uh, I think again, self-indulgent. It's a contradiction. Maybe I'm misinformed, but I thought he had worried beforehand. He didn't want to shoot him because he, if he hit him, he didn't want to have to be confined and like jailed if he'd hit him. But I thought didn't his shot hit the guy's coat? That's what my research shows. So that tells so, you if he, hit, he was aiming at the legs and he hit the coat. But that's still a pretty serious, you know. I'm not sure. That, this that, that's, dis- that's disputed. Um,
4: okay. But there's not many sources. Obviously, there weren't many witnesses. Uh, but it, <laughs> it's disputed whether he hit the coat or the ground or if it actually just went very wide. Um, is one of those things we just probably never know.
1: But it, it, my point being that this, for a man of discipline and, and required thinking before you act, and considering consequences, this is pretty reckless. And it's, it's uh, I think it shows poorly. I think it's hypocritical. I understand his need for honor and I understand the difference between now and then. But again, he was the last prime minister ever to do this for a reason
2: damning damning um comments from ed we will keep the momentum going we have also touched just briefly on this but as we start to move towards wrapping things up i want to talk legacies and i know you're going to want to take this in different directions um but i'm i'm going to be mean to you um and, and give you both hard ones to think about so marcus you know where this is going crimea the british army rests on its laurels after Waterloo. Wellington opposes substantial reform to the army, and I'm not just talking about the flogging thing, which he continues to argue in favour for for a variety of reasons. The army then pays the price in Crimea. He's the commander-in-chief, he's the head of administration of the army. Is his legacy, therefore, ironically, a negative one? Because he insists on maintaining the army that fought Waterloo, and therefore it comes unstuck when it has to fight the crimean war he doesn't prepare for that next conflict yeah
4: yeah i mean um your listeners will know um in the Napoleonicist episode of um that we were talking about his greatest victory uh and you nominated me to speak on porto you at the end the last question was his greatest failure and along with the great reform Act, i argued for failure to uh, reform before crimea and Josh Provan argued, shouted something which like, I unintelligible, basically about muskets. Um, no, I I agree. Um, actually, I don't have much here to say other than I do agree. Uh, Wellington blocked the reform. I don't know whether it was his harking back to the glory days of uh, Waterloo as, as such. I doubt it, or it's just the kind of most uh, you know. It was almost unthinkable then to think that his army could be defeated. So the only thing in his defence is kind of not with him is that he was not the only commander in chief between Waterloo and Crimea. And there were other ones. But Wellington certainly didn't go very far. He didn't reform the army and he didn't do much to modernise the system except to uh, sign in some new rifles. Uh, But the army needed far, far more reform uh, than that, especially with logistics, medical care and uh, actually reforming the kind of the regimental system into something slightly more uh, flexible. So yes, uh, strong agree. Uh, It wasn't until really the Cardwell reforms of the 1881 and completely reforming the regimental system do we kind of start to see a modernised force, in my opinion. So I don't actually have too much to defend Wellington on this one. Um, sorry to disappoint. I think that Wellington should do should have done more in his quieter years in retirement down at Warmer Castle, and should have started to throw some papers off to Horse
2: Guards. Yes, I think that we are going to have completely rewritten people's perception of you um, in terms of an Arch Wellington enthusiast over the course of this episode. Uh, that was. Astonishingly harmonious in terms of uh, agreement with my supposedly difficult question. There, I must try harder next time. Ed, um, I mean, I, I was going to say, here's an equally. Sorry, hard one, I, but... th-
4: I think maybe my my trick. Tw- my Twitter profile should be more of a Disney character, though I have to I have to throw out my my Disney thing and and shout about how great Wellington was and uh, Did you know that he he bought in loads of weapons that got lost on the route to Crimea or something? But no, I I do I do obviously with my limited characters have a limited space on places like Twitter, so I I throw a, a stereotype uh, strongly of this this guy in my tweed and chinos uh, and welling and love of Wellington. But yeah, he as I said at the beginning, he's got flaws and not failing to reform
2: the army really was up there. So, what does that make you like? The tweed clad princess Elsa of Twitter? I- I'm not entirely sure. That's a very odd image, and Ed is now in I- hysterics. That's really strange. Zach, um, exactly. <laughs> all I can say on that one is just
4: let it go, okay? Let it go. <laughs>
2: burn, burn. Ed,
4: salvage Disney this situation references. for me. Disney
1: references.
2: <laughs> so, Ed, and he, well, Perhaps not an equally hard one for you, but it's meant to be hard. Ultimately, let me put this to you. Wellington has a job to do, right? Particularly early on in his career. That job is to contribute to the defeat of Napoleon. Now, he does that admirably well. Whether you like the outcome as a Napoleon fan or you hate it, it doesn't really matter. The fact is that he does it and he does it effectively well. Now, in time, electoral reform was secured despite Wellington. Attitudes to the poor and downtrodden in society changed, despite Wellington. So the negatives of Wellington's actions and personality end up not having much of a physical legacy, because the winds of change have their effect. So as a result, are those negatives effectively offset by his role in toppling the dictator Napoleon, which does have a lasting impact on history.
1: Well, after, after uh, listening to Marcus's fabulous response, I am so gobsmacked I have no intellectual capacity to answer any of these questions. I am just stunned and it was so beautifully stated. Well, I think you've already answered your Thank question. That. No, I really, I liked it. It was a very measured response. Uh, I think you've answered your question, Zach, in that the negatives which are many of the core essence of who he was, cause no positive change. So we can't give them a pass on it. They're in spite of him. But here's what I would say to the general question. I think we're asking the wrong question because I think instead we might wonder and learn more by considering the contradiction in his behavior. I'd say if we look more at his words and deeds, try to put them in a wider context to understand the contradictions. And for me, therein lies not the rub, but the real insight. To assess him outside the context of Anglo-centric historiography and how the Wellington myth was built or even this 10-part series to give further insight into cause discourse. That's the things, we should be considering and that's what you've eloquently kind of presented for Marcus and I to do today is to debate aspects and to consider them without having to try to put a label or judge does it offset but to me in the end he does remain the man who defeats Napoleon you can't argue that you shouldn't take it away but we should to understand Wellington today I've learned a great deal. I've learned a great deal in preparation for this. and that's the whole point of the Napoleonicist, right that they asking these questions and digging and understanding. And so if we can get away from labeling or trying to give simple summations, then we, then I think we're going to uh, perhaps open him up more than he has been because he's been something of a caricature. And for good and bad. So, again, I, I have a heart, I really am intrigued to look at these contradictions, and I hope others would be too now after listening today.
2: So, in that case, we will leave the final words <laughs> with you. How would you suggest that we should remember Wellington? You've got around about 60 seconds each i'll be nice even though we are rapidly reaching the point where this will be the longest episode of all 100 and however many we've done now um ed you kick us off
1: were you surprised it would be the longest episode not really really. not really i'll be brief then and remind uh, the listeners about what rory murr wrote when I started and used until the closing of his life, Wellington remained remain a controversial, divisive and vital figure in Britain. And I think that says a great deal. And that's how we should perceive him, not as a sanitized hero, but a man of intelligence, singular talents, but inherent contradictions. For me, he was the hero of the nation, but so fundamentally elitist in his perceptions and policies. And again, I asked the question he was to me, perhaps the last major aristocratic military leader.
2: Marcus, I can't believe I'm saying this, but the very last words of Wellington Month are going, ladies and gentlemen, to Marcus Cribb. Thanks very much, Zach. Um, deeply honoured.
4: Um, Wellington should be remembered for many attributes. As I said at the beginning, not only for his love of arts and opera, his love of culture and supporting many charitable uh, aspects within Britain, and his his building projects as well, which I was, you know, proud to be uh, part of sustaining. But his military legacy is one that we cannot deny. Effectively undefeated on a battlefield, uh, we, we learn from him, we still talk about him today, yet his name is not as well known as his adversary. And the more we can talk about Wellington, the more we can learn about him, um, is, is only a positive for our own history. And bringing that history, you know, from just from Britain all the way across to America, and let's hope all across the world, as we, we can talk about Wellington's time in India and the, the kind of the darkest days of British Empire building that he was a part of. But we cannot take away, as Ed has brilliantly put, you know, his intelligence and his attributes there but his energy his tenacity his desire to fight the battles to win the war and i do believe to win that war so that war did not carry on needing to be fought to finish the fighting to finish the wars and to put the put all of that behind himself he was not a warmonger he was not a conqueror he was a man with a job to do that he did fantastically well So all I finish with is that if people want to know more as we can safely start to do so, as well as reading, go to these places, you know, yes, absolutely house warmer castle, but if people can visit the battlefields, especially Waterloo, it's so easy to visit from Britain when it's legal and safe to do so do and just kind of stand where Wellington and all those other tens of thousands of men fought and died and learn more about their sacrifices. uh, Then we're doing something uh, positive for the Wellington month.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Wellington month from the Napoleonicist. I have been joined tonight by the brilliant Professor Ed Cox, writer of All for the King Shilling, which you can find uh, available online from Oklahoma University Press. I've also been joined by Marcus Cribb, who you will find on Twitter, at History, this has i believe looking at the clock count and factoring in a couple of minuscule edits where i've managed to screw things up um, been the longest running episode of the series um, so if that's not a testament to wellington and his ability to sustain conversations i don't know what is stay tuned for a quick taste of what's stay. coming up but ed and marcus thank you both very very much
1: thank you both too it was a pleasure real honor
4: Brilliant. I've been looking forward to not only being back on the Napoleon Assist, as you know, one of my favourite podcasts, but speaking with Ed, um, a man I respect, and uh, you more than worthy adversary, sir. so thank you very much uh, for putting up with me. It was great.
2: As you've just heard, that brings us to the end of Wellington Month on the Napoleon Assist. I hope you've enjoyed the breadth and depth on offer throughout the last four weeks, and that this has encouraged you to think about Wellington and, in fact, other figures from history in a different, maybe more mixed light. I want to take a moment to thank all of those who contributed. Beatrice de Graaf, Mark Thompson, Josh Proven, Will Fletcher, Christine Hughes-Patrone, Martin Howard, Bob Burnham, Marcus Cribb and Ed Coss. In case you've missed it in previous episodes, there are shout-outs for my guests' works and social media in the episodes. Do take the time to follow up on their work if you are keen. They participate in these episodes for nothing, much though I would love to pay them, there isn't the budget. So give them a follow on Twitter if you're intrigued by their work, and support the brilliant research that they are involved in. You know what's coming by now. A huge thank you to my patrons and supporters. The focus of these themed months are actually chosen by the Emperor and Commander level patrons in an admittedly meagre attempt to thank them for their input. They are actually voting on the next themed month right now, so if you want to influence that vote, you know what to do. If you don't want to become a supporter, believe me, I totally get that. Times are hard, money is finite, and I never want folks to be guilt tripped into supporting this podcast. But there are still massively impactful things that you can do to support this show. For a start, hit the like button and the subscribe button. That takes two seconds but it has a major impact on the algorithms, especially if everyone did it. 700 people tune into an episode, if everyone did it, the effect would be phenomenal. You can stay up to date with the Napoleon Assist news by following me on Twitter at Z White History. Best of all, you can leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. The more glowing, the better, if I'm honest, but still. What if you do want to support the show financially? Well, I'll be level with you, I have an aim to make the content weekly. But for every hour of podcasting, there are a good four or five hours of prep, sourcing, research and editing. This podcast isn't about making money. If it was, I'd have tried to sell it to a distribution company and taken a wage from it. I'd have slapped adverts on it all the way through and taken sponsorships. Instead, the money gets reinvested. I'm happy to invest the time, but the kit is another matter. I want to bring you videos. I want to bring you live, in-person interviews at interesting locations. I want to bring you aerial footage by drones on top of what have become the staple episodes of this show. Yet those are expensive dreams, hence the podcasting equivalent of begging at the start and end of each episode. So if you are interested and are able to, and I emphasise that last bit heavily, check the links in the description. You needn't become a regular supporter if you don't want to, since you can leave a tip via Ko fi. Whether it's £1 or something more, know that I am massively appreciative of your generosity. When it comes to Patreon, there are tiered systems. Check the link for the prices, it's all in the description to this episode. There are different perks in each tier, so you can hopefully decide what is worth it for you. All patrons get 10% discount on Napoleonic titles at Pen and Sword. There are other perks like shoutouts, voting rights and bespoke meetings with me. A particular thank you, therefore, to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stouss and JC Kaiser, my Commander Patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my mentioned in Dispatches Patrons, Mark Dewhurst, Jim Getz, Stephen Colson, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Lyon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Rory Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. So, the bit that you've hung around for, what's coming this autumn on The Napoleonicist? Well, another themed month is incoming. It's looking like it will be naval month, but as I say, that vote hasn't closed yet, so everything could change. I've got sessions on the politics of war, pirates, women in conflict zones, and a particularly poignant, and in my opinion, very important session, with a major announcement about a charity dedicated to honouring the Napoleonic war dead. For now then, the Napoleonicist goes back to fortnightly episodes. Join me therefore in two weeks for that session on the politics of war, where I will be joined by not one, not two, but three of the world's leading professors of the period, in what promises to be an absolute masterclass on why war and politics cannot be separated. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening.